Well, as uh, Seth mentioned at the outset of our service, uh, we're doing something a little bit different this morning. So if you've been around here, you know our normal practice in our sermons uh, is to take a passage of Scripture, read it, and then talk about what it means, how it applies to our lives, how it points us to the Lord Jesus. But every once in a great while, we, we do uh, find it helpful to step back and take a look at what the Bible says about a certain topic, and, and that's what we come to do today. Uh, in some ways, the, uh, this sermon was born out of a, a comment that I heard uh, Nikki Matson, the CEO of Mosaic Virginia, make. She said that she visits churches and is often surprised when Christians tell her that it's not at all obvious to them that being a follower of Christ means that they should be opposed to the practice of abortion. Now, in one sense, the Bible doesn't give us a specific passage, a verse we can point to that says abortion is wrong or even that life begins at conception. But, but I, I was reflecting on her comment and it led me to wonder if everyone who's part of our church family would be properly equipped from the scriptures to think through and to, to respond to that question. Why is it that Christians on the whole uh, think that abortion is wrong? Uh, since today has been appointed Sanctity of Life Sunday to mark the anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision, since we're poised to start a new book of the Bible in the next few weeks, it seemed like this was a good time uh, to stop and think through what the Bible teaches on this issue. Now, a couple of caveats before we begin. First of all, I don't really want to talk about abortion per se. Uh, instead, what I'd like to do with this time is talk about God and the world that he's made and, and our place in it as his creatures. So I, I think that the practice and the acceptance and even the celebration of abortion in our society is simply one manifestation of a much larger system, a much larger way of thinking about uh, important issues. So the, the practice and acceptance and celebration of abortion in our society is one particularly controversial and front and center fruit that's hanging on a much larger and more complex tree. And I think one of the reasons that there seems to be so little common ground to be found on this issue is because uh, the two sides really have vastly different assumptions about the world and about who made it and about our place in it. And so what I'd like to do is sketch out this morning the Bible's testimony regarding those things so that we as followers of Christ can bring our thinking about this issue and every issue uh, into line with what scripture says. Uh, the other caveat that I'd make before I launch out is that my goal is not to, to uh, heap guilt or condemnation on anyone. So to put my cards on the table up front, I, I believe the Bible leads us to conclude that abortion is sin. It's an expression of rebellion against God. And I assume that in a, in a room this size, there are women who have had abortions, and there are men who have encouraged women to have abortions. And so if that's you, what I don't want is for you to feel particularly singled out as a, a kind of unique sinner. In fact, I want you to feel like you have a, a great deal of company in a room full of sinners. And I hope that you'll see that God's love and his forgiveness in Christ extends to you. But even if you're not guilty of the particular sin of abortion per se, I think we all can acknowledge that we are guilty of the various forms of rebellion against God that lead someone to take such a step. So I have prioritized myself at the expense of others. 
I have been guilty of holding human life cheaply at times. I've been guilty of being indifferent to the plight of the vulnerable, of thinking that I have the right to do whatever I want to do with my body. And so my goal is not to make anyone feel guilty or condemned. Instead, I hope that we will together see how badly we all need a savior, how badly we need to be forgiven and washed and made new. I hope we'll all see just how wonderful it is that God has sent his son to be such a savior for us. So I don't have a, an outline per se with a bunch of specific points. Instead, my goal is to sort of lay out some observations, some trajectories, some patterns that we see in the Bible, and hope that that will sort of drive us to think well about our world. And so let me just start at the beginning by pointing out from Scripture that, that the Bible is very clear that God is the author of all human life. So I think that's where we start thinking through this issue. God is the author of all human life. This is the consistent testimony of the Bible. Humanity did not emerge from some primordial soup, but was created by God for a specific purpose. So the beginning of the book of Genesis, it shows us God making humanity as the crowning achievement of his creation, male and female in his image. And right there at the start, God gives the first man and the first woman a command. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1.28. Make more humans, he tells them. Uh, this creation mandate is part of what a perfect world looks like. Human beings being blessed with more and more human beings. Uh, from that point on, we see that all future humans are created by the union of a man and a woman. But God still stands behind all human life as its author and sustainer. So Scott read for us earlier from Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul speaking to the crowd at Athens. Listen to what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind, life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." So consider what the Apostle Paul wants these pagans to know about the true God. He made everything. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You couldn't have a more comprehensive statement. God made everything. He gives to everyone everything they need. He makes the nations. He allots their boundaries. And we are his offspring. We see these truths reflected in familiar Old Testament narratives. So in Genesis chapter 30, we read that a woman named Rachel was unable to conceive children until Genesis 30 verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. In Judges 13, we read about a similar situation. It says there in verses uh, 2 to 3, There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Fast forward 20 or so verses, Samson is born. In 1 Samuel, we read about a woman named Hannah who was uh, unable to have children because according to 1 Samuel 1.6, the Lord had closed her womb. She prayed earnestly for a child, and we read in 1 Samuel 1.19, And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. We could keep heaping up examples, but you get the point. If someone has a child, it's because the Lord has given that child to them. If someone does not have a child, it's because the Lord has chosen not to give them a child, at least not yet. Right? What is clear, the very least, is that all human life comes directly from the Lord. He creates it. He gives it at his own sovereign pleasure. And the Bible does assume that the Lord's creation of human life extends human personhood even into the womb. So we can't say that the Lord only begins to take interest. He only begins to consider someone a human being after they're born. So in Luke chapter 1 verse 41, significance is attached to the fact that the child in Elizabeth's womb, who will be born and called John the Baptist, that child in utero leapt with joy when his, his mother was in the presence of Mary because the Lord Jesus was in her womb. Right? That's interesting, but it's also uh, attached, uh, great significance is attached to it there, that these two babies, though yet not born, were in some way able to recognize one another. Centuries earlier, God said to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born... I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And as Brent read for us earlier from Psalm 139, the psalmist prays to the Lord, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So the big picture, I think, is clear. God is the one responsible for human life. He opens the womb. He is involved in the, the life of the child beginning in the womb. And what we see growing out of that truth is a clear sense that life is a gift, that it should be treated as such, that it should be received as a blessing. So at the risk of stating the very obvious, life is better than death. Life is better than no life. So if you think about it, God's deliverance of his people often takes the form of sparing their lives. Think about Noah and his family. Their lives are spared in the ark as the flood descends on the world. I think about God positioning Joseph in Egypt so he could provide food for his family, thus saving their lives during a famine. God's salvation looks like saving their lives. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, or Daniel in the lion's den. God's deliverance 
comes in the form of sparing their lives. Uh, Think of the miracles of Jesus, healing those who had life-threatening diseases, bringing Lazarus back to life, raising the the son of the widow of Nain, bringing Jairus' daughter back to life. Right, all of those things that tended towards life, they were signs of the kingdom of God, signs that God was in their midst. God's salvation often comes in the form of sparing someone's life. We know instinctively that life is good, that it's a tragedy to die. And thus, it's no surprise that having children was considered a, a great sign of God's blessing. So when the, the book of Exodus opens, the family of Jacob has been blessed by God. And what does that blessing look like? How do we know that the people of Israel have been blessed? Well, Exodus 1.7, it says the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Then when they come out of Egypt, the Lord tells them what he's going to do for them in the promised land. In Exodus 23, we read this. It says, you shall serve the Lord your God. And he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Leviticus 26, a similar promise. The Lord says to his people, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. In Deuteronomy Again, another promise. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. Right? The biblical authors signal to us that God was with his people, that that they were being blessed by, by showing us there in Egypt that they were multiplying. God said, you'll you'll know when you get to the promised land, you'll know my blessing because because you will abound. In addition to that, we also see that that God's blessing and his salvation. Have you noticed this as you've read through scripture? Have you noticed how often God's salvation, how often his blessing takes the form of the gift of a child? Right in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord promises Eve that he would crush the serpent through her offspring not plural, but singular, her, her offspring, one, a descendant, someone who'd be born into her line. A bit later in Genesis, God's plan to bless the nations through Abraham, it, it comes through the miraculous birth of Isaac. It, in Judges, the birth of Samson is God's means of delivering his people from the Philistines. Oftentimes, you see God's people have a problem, and he sends them a child, He sends them someone who will grow up and deliver them. Of course, long before the prophet, it wasn't long before the prophets began to speak of a of an offspring who was to come, a descendant of King David, a a miraculous birth that would occur, a child who would be born, who would bring God's salvation to his people. So in Isaiah chapter 7, we read, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. A couple of chapters later in Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government should be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's not insignificant that when 
That salvation does arrive in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's attended by not one, but two miraculous births, that of John the Baptist and that of Jesus himself. Right? The gift of life, the, the birth of children, the preservation of life, right? the, the snatching of life out of the jaws of death, all of it seems to be sort of woven into the rhythm of salvation in the Bible. But in contrast, you see that death, And the absence of life is often seen as God's punishment against sin and wickedness. So if life is is attached to the rhythm of God's salvation, the absence of life, death, is often a form of God's punishment against sin. So in Genesis chapter 3, death enters the world as a direct result, uh, as a consequence of the first human's rebellion against God. And the Bible is full of stories of God taking human life as a sort of judicial act. So in 1 Samuel 2, the Lord decreed the death of Hophni and Phinehas, the wicked sons of Eli, and within a chapter they are dead. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira die for their sinful deceit. In Acts 12, Herod is struck down by the angel of the Lord for his pride and his self-worship. Death is the consequence, the punishment of sin. In a similar way, the lack of children was often God's judgment uh, against sin. So not always, right? You see cases of women like Rachel and Hannah and Elizabeth who, who God has withheld children from them for his own sovereign purposes, but, but oftentimes it's a, a direct result of sin. So in Genesis 20, after Abimelech returns uh, Sarah to her husband Abraham, we read this, then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now there's a lot going on in that story, but for our purposes, just notice there at the end that we learn that God had closed all of the wombs in Abimelech's house in response to his taking Abraham's wife as his own. Right, in order to demonstrate his displeasure with the king, God closed the wombs. He withheld life as an act of punishment. In the book of Leviticus, certain sins are said to be punished with childlessness. So you can see Leviticus chapter 20, verses 20 to 21. In the book of Jeremiah, uh, Jeconiah was cursed by the Lord. The Lord tells the prophet Jeremiah to write this man down as childless. See that in Jeremiah 22, 30. Right, even the defining act of salvation in the Old Testament, the way that God delivers his people in the exodus from Egypt, it is kicked off by the Passover event. Right? And what happens there? The angel of the Lord executes vengeance against Pharaoh and the Egyptians by taking away the lives of all the firstborn sons. Right? God's judgment oftentimes takes the form of of taking away life or withholding life. Now, it's appropriate to stop at this point just very briefly and and to say, to to note that God does delegate this judicial authority to human governments under certain circumstances. So Paul says in Romans 13, he says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. 
for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So Paul understands that governing authorities bear the sword for a purpose, that, that they serve God as an agent of his judgment on those who do evil. Right? The taking of a human life through capital punishment is an extension of God's condemnation of sin when it's done justly and rightly. So the big picture, life is good. Preserving life is good. New life is a blessing. Death, the absence of life, the absence of children is seen as a, as a curse and a punishment. Right? If you had to sum up the Bible's position on human life, you couldn't do much better than what you see in Psalm 127, verse 3. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, is a reward. That's how the Bible leads us to think about children, about the gift of life, about human life. It is a reward. It is a blessing. And so it should come as no surprise that Satan, right, the enemy of God's people, sets himself up in opposition to human life. He hates it. He works against it at every turn. So in John 8, Jesus says the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Right? If human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation, bearers of his image, capable of bringing him great glory, then it is Satan's desire that we be deceived and devoured and destroyed. And what we see is that human beings who have aligned themselves with the devil's cause, whether self-consciously or not, often oppose life or, or hold it cheaply. So think of Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1. Again, the Exodus account begins with this amazing story of God's people multiplying, flourishing under his blessings, being greatly blessed by the Lord, fulfilling the mandate given at creation to humanity. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 10, we're told that Pharaoh decided to, quote, deal shrewdly with the people of Israel. So the book of Exodus opens, and you have all of these signs that God is blessing the people of Israel. They are, they are multiplying. They are being fruitful. They are carrying out the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And then Pharaoh decides he's going to deal shrewdly with them. And that's a tip-off. Because that word shrewdly, that's the same word that's used back in Genesis 3 to describe the serpent in the garden who is more cunning than all the animals. Right, the, uh, Moses here is, is tipping us off that, that Pharaoh is, is a puppet. He's, he's a stand-in. He's the, the shrewd one working at the behest of the cunning one. Pharaoh is the devil's man doing the devil's work. And what, what does he do? What does he do to the people of God who are experiencing God's blessing, who are being fruitful and multiplying? Well, he tells their midwives to kill all the male babies when they're born. He launches a massive attack on all of these children that are being born. He, he launches an attack on life itself. Significantly for our purposes, Israel's deliverance comes because God's people didn't get on board with the king's dictates. So Shipra and Pua, the two Israelite midwives, they didn't follow his orders. Moses' mother hid him uh, in a basket rather than drown him in the Nile. 
Right? We also see this diabolical antipathy towards life in many of the ancient pagan religions. So the Canaanite religions were, worship, were devoted to the worship of demons, according to Deuteronomy 32.17. And many of them involved, as part of their liturgy, as part of their worship, child sacrifice. We know off the pages of the Bible that ancient Carthaginians and Phoenicians sacrificed their children by fire. In the Roman Empire, it was quite common to, to leave infants exposed to die if they were unwanted or had a physical deformity or had the misfortune of being female. Right? In those days, uh, abortion was difficult and dangerous, and so you had something of a late-stage abortion where you just took an infant that you didn't want and you left it exposed on a hill to die. When Israel... When God's people in the Old Testament went astray, they even fell so far as to join in the nations in offering their children up uh, to these demons. So the psalmist records the descent of Israel into dehumanizing disobedience in Psalm 106. It says, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. In Jeremiah, the Lord expresses his outrage through the prophet at the actions of the people. He says in Jeremiah 32, they built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them. Nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. In Ezekiel, the people are further condemned. Ezekiel 23. For they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery. And they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had borne to me. God's blessing, it looks like life. It looks like abundance of life. The devil hates it. And so his worship is dehumanizing and opposed to life. And so with all that data sort of floating out there, what I'd like to do is start building towards some sense of what this means for us. And I think we start by seeing how God's people were meant as part of their worship uh, to protect and defend and cherish human life. So, so part of our worship as God's people is, is protecting and cherishing and defending human life. This is really at the heart of the sixth commandment, right? Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it says simply, you shall not murder. God's people have always understood that in that command, God is not simply concerned about the, the, the discreet act of murder, but that the prohibitions in the Ten Commandments include all lesser offenses as well. So when God tells us not to murder, he's establishing a much larger principle that we are to protect and defend and respect human life. So we see just one application of this principle in the book of Deuteronomy. Right? The people of Israel in Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 are told this, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. 
Okay, sort of a, a random command to people who are going into a new land and they're gonna be doing a lot of construction, right? But this is not a building code issue. No, God is telling his people one practical way to live out uh, their obedience to him. He wants his people to do more than simply refrain from taking life, do not murder. No, he, he wants them to connect the dots. He wants them to see that life is a wonderful gift from him, that human beings are made in his image and are precious to him. And so therefore they should take every effort to protect life, including sort of building a fence around their roof. The roofs in those days served like patios or, or, or decks, right? So that no one might accidentally fall off and die, right? They're hardwired into the law is this concern for the, the lives of others. So the Westminster Larger Catechism, written in England in 1647, it, it reflects on this commandment, you shall not murder. It reflects in this way in questions 135 and 136. So question 135 of the Westminster Larger Catechism says, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? Right, the commandment not to murder. And the answer is this, and I've, uh, I've shortened this a bit uh, for the sake of time. But it says, the duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any by a just defense thereof against violence, comforting and succoring the distressed and protecting and defending the innocent. Then the next question, what are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. It says the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of, our, of ourselves or of others, except in the case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense, the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, Oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. You get the point. God's people have always understood that part of their worship of him, part of their obedience to him, is, is valuing, cherishing, and working to protect human life. I think this application stretches out in all directions. When the church of Jesus Christ has been at its best, it has been at the forefront of protecting life and insisting on the dignity and value of every human being. Right, as I mentioned before, it's common for pagan societies to hold life cheaply. Right, without the theological, theological conviction that life matters to God the creator, then mankind ultimately becomes the arbiter of who lives and who dies. So in ancient Sparta, a newborn child was taken by its parents before the council of the elders, and the elders would determine if that child should live or be abandoned, right? If that child was likely to be a drain on society because of some defect or disability, it was simply disposed of. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, wrote that there should be a law preventing disabled children from being allowed to live. Later philosophers like Cicero in Rome and Seneca advocated for the same position. Right? In Rome, as I mentioned, exposure was a way of disposing of extra mouths to feed, especially if it was a female mouth. 
Since girls were a liability, you had to pay dowry for them when they got older. If a child was disabled or deformed in any way, if the paternity was in doubt, or if it was undesirable, well, that child could simply be disposed of. According to Roman law, the head of the household, the, the pater familius, technically had the right to get rid of any child in his household. It means the child of his servants, the child of his, his family, any child under his authority, he had the right to dispose of if he didn't think uh, that they deserved to live. So we have a letter uh, from a Roman soldier writing to his wife right around 1 BC or so. And this soldier writes this. He says, know that I'm still in Alexandria. And do not worry if the whole army sets out. I am staying in Alexandria. I ask you and entreat you, take care of the child. And if I receive my pay soon, I will send it to you. Okay, so far so good. Above all, if you bear a child and it is a male, let it be. If it is a female, cast it out. Here's the thing we have to see. It's not because those people were particularly vicious and cruel and hateful that they, that they viewed the world that way. It's not because they didn't love their children in some way, but because they had no knowledge of God, no fear of the true God who made every human life, they simply concluded that they had the right and authority to decide who lives and who dies based on their preferences. I think we see the same philosophy at work in the way modern nations and modern people think about life and children. So in the 1980s, China implemented a one-child policy in order to curb population growth. Right? You see the assumption behind that? People are a problem. This resulted in the abortion of countless baby girls. Right? Again, many societies, male children are seen as more valuable. Right? If you only get one child, you probably want to make sure that the one you keep is a boy. Uh, India made abortion legal up to 24 weeks of pregnancy, so roughly the end of the second trimester, and eventually had to ban finding out in advance the gender of your child because everyone just aborted girl babies. There weren't enough females being born. Now, in contrast, the Christian church, when acting consistently with the Bible, has worked to protect and defend all life, even the lives of the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable and the disabled. So the first Christians lived out their biblical convictions by condemning infanticide, condemning child abandonment. Right? That was a radically countercultural stance to take. It was seemingly obvious, however, to first century believers that they should view the, the, the gift of human life as something from God to be protected and defended. So the, the Didache, which was a, a guide to doctrine for new believers, probably written around 150 AD. So this is the very early days of the Christian church. It tells Christians that you shall not abort a child or commit infanticide. The third century theologian Lactantius wrote this. He said, it is as wicked to expose as it is to kill. In 372, the bishop Basil of Caesarea influenced the emperor at the time, Valentinian, to outlaw, finally, the, the practice of infant exposure. The first Christians often saw it as their duty to save and rescue and adopt unwanted children. So in the late second century, uh, Binius of Dijon created a home for providing, and protect, providing for and protecting abandoned children, many of whom were, were deformed as the result of failed abortions. 
Uh, in the late third century, Aphra of Augsburg. This is a woman who was a, a prostitute before becoming a Christian. Uh, once she was converted, she developed a ministry to the abandoned children of prisoners and thieves and other criminals. A bit later in the 400s, Augustine wrote a letter approving of the common practice of Christians adopting children who had been left to die, to, had been exposed uh, by their parents. Now, to be clear, my goal is not to prove to you that Christians are good people who love their children and unbelievers are bad and don't care about human life at all. No, I think the point is that apart from the premises of Christianity, there is ultimately no reason why people should value human life, why we should value the lives of people that we don't know, why we should value the lives of people who can't obviously contribute anything to society. There's no reason why we should value people who might be a net loss in terms of resources. But if you find the idea of killing a child because it's disabled repugnant, right, if you find the idea of killing a child because it's female to be horrible, and I hope you do, I would only want to point out that it's Christianity that serves as the only coherent foundation for such a belief. So if you're not a Christian, but you are repulsed by the idea of infanticide, I'd suggest you'd struggle to make a compelling case from, from your own principles alone. Because if there is no God, or if humans are the product of impersonal natural forces working over the course of billions of years, if, if human beings are nothing more than, than chemical and, and biological processes, then there's no good reason to oppose the disposal of the unwanted and the unlovely and the unproductive. Now, if you oppose that idea, I think it's because your ethics, your impulses, ha have been shaped by the legacy of Christianity, where we're taught to love people because they're made by God in his image, not because of what they do for us or what they contribute to society. And so for those of us who are followers of Christ, I think we have a call on our lives when it comes to how we live. My goal this morning is not to convert you to a, a certain political position or, or even to take a certain side on a controversial issues, though I think our Christian convictions shape the way that we vote. They shape the way we think about the wider world. Rather, my hope is that you will see that part of your worship, part of the service that you render to God in light of who he is and what he's done is to work energetically to celebrate and to preserve and to protect human lives made in his image. And I do think that means we should oppose abortion at, at the legislative and political level, but also at the, the level of the individual and the community. Again, as Seth mentioned at the beginning of the service, this is why we support a ministry like Mosaic, right? a, a ministry that's helping people to choose to value life. It also means that as Christians, we should be the first people to be brokenhearted and outraged at the unjust taking of any human life, even if that life is of someone who seems very different from us. In the end, the Bible teaches us that there are no people who are very different from us, that all the things that matter we hold in common, that we're made in God's image. So the Bible teaches me to love my neighbor as myself. And my neighbor, according to Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan, is anyone the Lord puts in my way who needs my help. So that means when the police take a, a life through excessive force, 
or when a child is caught in crossfire of a gang war, or when the government executes a person who turns out to be innocent, when immigrants who are being detained at the border die of preventable causes, when people perish in refugee camps, when, when technology makes so-called euthanasia a legitimate option for people who are suffering, our first reaction as Christians is not to align with the position of our preferred political party. It's not to even distance myself in my heart from that person by a perceived cultural distance. No, we should feel deep sorrow and grief and compassion and even justified anger at, at any wrongful taking of human life. As Christians living in America, we should work to oppose the way a, a pagan and secular mindset is taking over the nation, right, where human life is less important than my convenience, my wealth, my personal ambitions. Now, as Christians, we must publicly advocate for the dignity of all human beings, even if there are things about them that would make them unable to contribute to society in ways that are obvious to us. We should, to the extent possible, put pressure on those in government to protect all human life, and we should join Christians throughout the centuries in devoting ourselves wholeheartedly to adoption and foster care and providing for the needy. Brothers and sisters, our stance on an issue like abortion, it, as I said earlier, it's, it's merely a fruit of a, a much larger tree. It's just an expression of how we see ourselves and the world that we live in. Human life is a precious gift from God. But sin, by its nature, deludes me into thinking that I'm the one who's in control, that, that I'm the one who has the ultimate authority to decide. So if this child fits into my plans, if it fits into my goals, it can live. But if not, we can be thankful that we have more efficient ways of disposing of it than the ancient Romans had. I think when we understand things biblically, I think we see that abortion is not some particular sin that people out there commit, but it's something whose roots exist in all of our hearts. Right, we have all taken the lives that the Lord has given to us, and instead of using them for his glory, we have, we have lived as if our lives were our own. Right, we've all lived as if we were made for us and not for him. We've lived as if other people exist to serve us and our ends, not his. So for various reasons, you may not have had the opportunity or inclination to have an abortion, and if so, that's great, praise God. But all of the things that lead people into that particular sin are present in your heart and mine. We are all guilty of imagining that, that our lives have been given to us for our purposes. We're all guilty of indifference to the needs and the sufferings of other people made in God's image. And so we are all in need of grace and forgiveness and the mercy of God. And the good news is that, that we celebrate is that God, in his great love, has not condemned us for all of the ways that we've rebelled against him, but rather he has drawn near to us to save us from our sins. God's salvation has come to us through the gift of a child. Right? The eternal Son of God became incarnate. He took on flesh in a human womb. And the Lord Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God. The Lord Jesus cherished human life. He restored life. 
He opposed those who, who took it or who held it cheaply. But instead of experiencing all the blessings of life that he deserved, he stepped into our place. He took our punishment for us. Jesus willingly died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, as our substitute. Think about it. On the cross, the one who made all life, the one the Bible calls the author of life, the one who sustains all life, on the cross, he tasted death for rebels like us. But the grave couldn't hold him. He rose from the dead in victory over sin and death, and now he offers forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who will turn from their rebellion and trust in him. The good news of the Bible is that the God of the universe is life. That he who is life, who is the creator of all life, in his great love calls us to turn from the death that sin brings to us and to turn to him and to live. And brothers and sisters, it's that good news that we celebrate at the Lord's table. Here in the bread and in the cup, we have a visible reminder that the Lord has done everything needed to rescue us from spiritual death and to bring us into eternal life. That the Lord Jesus' broken body, represented by the bread and his shed blood, represented in the cup, have secured for sinners like us eternal life in the presence of our God. In that way, the Lord's Supper is God's good news on display for his people. Now, before we come to the table, it's appropriate for us to take a moment to examine our lives. That's Paul's encouragement to the church at Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The Lord's Supper is for all who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ, who have demonstrated uh, that by obeying Jesus' command to be baptized, and who are connected to a church that believes the gospel by membership. The Lord's invitation to his table is a gracious one. It is extended to you not on the basis of any good in you, but because of what Jesus has done for his people. So the Lord's Supper is not a performance review. This is not an opportunity for you to look at your week and see whether or not you're worthy of God's grace. Rather, this is a meal for sinners who know that they have no other option, no other salvation except the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for them. With that said, the Lord's Supper is not something that we take lightly. So if you know yourself not to be a follower of Christ, then this meal isn't for you, at least not yet. Instead of coming forward, use the time uh, that you have to, to think about why it is the Bible says that you need a Savior, why it is that Jesus had to die in order for people to be saved we would love nothing more, friend, than to welcome you to the table with us at some point in the future if you would put your trust in Christ. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, but if your life is marked by sin and rebellion against him, and you have no intention of turning from it, or if you insist on, on holding on to bitterness against a brother or sister in the church to the point that you wish they weren't part of the church, then, then you have to do what Christians do in that case, and that is repent. Turn from that sin, confess it to the Lord, and turn your back on it, and then come to the Lord's table. 
This is a meal for sinners. It's a meal for repentant sinners. And so now I'm going to invite Andrew to come and to lead us in confessing our sins to the Lord. Uh, then we'll sing and we will celebrate together. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Father, we know that human life is to be welcomed and celebrated and protected. Humans made in your image are to be treated with love and honor and perfect courtesy. But instead, out of our hearts comes murder. We confess our murderous actions and thoughts and desires, knowing that you already know about them and are eager to forgive us. Some of us, men and women, may have been involved in taking human life, actual, actual killing. Many others of us are guilty of murder in the heart. Your word says that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, 